3: previously on Dead and Gone.
4: The high-profile search for Polly
3: Class, kidnapped from her own bedroom three years ago, made her face familiar across
1: the country. Jay Patterson was the boss of Polly Class's father. And Polly Class went missing a month after Jennifer went missing. So he got thrown into one of the biggest and worst crimes in that area's history.
5: My gut right away was, like, my aunt was, like, talking about this guy Tro, like, he was this great guy who was, like, helping them. But I'm like, you know, right away, I'm thinking, he's got something to do with this.
1: Susan definitely mentioned that she was suspicious of Tro. She was trying to get him to talk. He was not necessarily that forthcoming. I talked to his father. And Jay told me, quote, he's up north. I was hoping that we could get over this calamity rather than open up a festering old wound. And I told him, the wound has never closed. This woman is still missing. (laughs)
6: working full-time at that time. A year or two before that, I had a heart attack. Had quadruple bypass done, so I wasn't in great physical shape myself. So Sue really did almost everything.
3: This is Fred, Jennifer's father and husband of Susan Wilmer. Susan became a warrior in advocating for the missing. She was also the one who sent the sheriff a photo of Jennifer to be used in missing person posters. And when she showed up to California, she saw that it was returned to the house that Jennifer last lived at.
6: My wife was the one that kept books and, you know, and tried to keep records of everything. And she worked as an accountant for 25 years. She was a really smart person. And she left me hanging here. Next month is Jennifer's birthday. It's my wife's birthday, and it's also my wife died on the 7th of April, and that's the day we first went out on a blind date. You know, I always thought I'd die first. I'm five years older than my wife. One night, she was having trouble breathing, so I went into her. She said, call an ambulance for me. As soon as they put her on a respirator, that was the end. Had cancer, we didn't know it. I don't know how... uh... I I can't get her back, that's for sure.
7: There is no frame of reference to kind of do this. There's no book about this either.  — If your child disappears, this is what you should do. Here are the 10 questions you can ask. We can probably find something like that now. —
3: Here's Jennifer's older brother again, Frederick. —
7: You know, right from the start, it was like, (laughs) we, what do we need to do? How do we do it? Who do we do it with? We're here. They're out there. We're in a world where the connectivity isn't what it is now. I actually think the thing that prompted someone in the Trinity County Sheriff's Department to look at this is my mom and dad went to to our local police precinct and sat down with the detective here, who was like, you know, did one of those WTF moments. Like, what do you mean nobody? So he kind of did whatever had to be done to get someone to pick up a phone and
4: and open a file, if you will. — So we're talking about a a sheriff's department, probably one of the smallest in the country. At the time, they may have had eight or ten deputies for the whole department. —
3: This is Randy Mendoza. He worked for the Arcata Police Department at the time of Jennifer's disappearance
4: my philosophy has always been we don't have a whole lot to give you we're going to give you everything we have at some point it just seemed like the people that they were dealing with were working harder at trying to to prove that it wasn't a murder case you know than than if they would have just worked it as a murder case it just seemed like they were glomming on to a missing person case the wilmers were so upset that they were not getting What they felt the attention that they should have. I realized that that they were just so disheartened with 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 Trinity County. And just having the, the Wilmers come over and talk to me and feeling powerless not being able to help them other than to listen and to get together with them and let them run things by me. I just tried to do my best to you know in some cases when they would get really upset about things i would just kind of help talk them through it and i I did not have any any personal contact with the trinity people she's supposed to
6: have gone to the farm one of her roommates was supposed to drive her that morning but she was having a problem with the car so she couldn't drive her jennifer ended up hitchhiking Back then, uh, out in California there, it seemed like everybody hitchhiked all over. It wasn't uh, an uncommon thing out there. As far as we could ever tell, uh, she never arrived at the farm. Just uh, a very rural part of California area. Anytime we drove from Hawkins Bar out to the Sheriff's Office in Trinity County, it was like a death drive. It was not a pleasant place to visit. I know the uh, one of the sheriff's deputies was out to the house a few times. In fact, we were right there with him one day uh, that he went out there. And he told us, I could probably lock them all up for smoking marijuana. The place stinks of it. Good. Do whatever you have to do. It's, It's still not helping my daughter. She's still missing.
3: Here's Jennifer's dad again, Fred.
6: We had a great problem with the sheriff's department out there. Trinity County, I guess it is. There was no ever cooperation with them. They were just very obnoxious people. They uh, didn't want to really look into this at all. We we were kind of uh, a little bit leery about the sheriff and uh, some of the deputies out there too. We didn't have a good relationship with them. At one point, my wife took them to court and tried to get them fired from the sheriff's department out there. But it seems like they're immune to complaints like that. The judge uh, ruled in the deputy's favor, but he said it was unbecoming of police officers the way they acted with us. There was a lot of suspicious people over That area of California, that's the part where they grow marijuana all over the place. At that time, it wasn't legal.
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: The guy's name was Chief. At least that's what everyone called him. Cassidy didn't know him all that well. She was out dumpster diving earlier that evening. That magic hour, right after the sun sets and the restaurants start tossing half-eaten meals from their first wave of diners. When she got back, her car was gone, and so was Chief. Real names were a rarity out on the road. Every single person who joined the never-ending trek from state to state, coast to coast, following the Grateful Dead circus from one shakedown street to another. They were all either running from something, running towards something, or just trying to remake themselves into a different person. These were people who were just getting used to their new cocoon or were finally starting to break out of it. Deadheads like Rainbow Jen, Moonflower, Happy Tree, Elijah Monkey Plant. Elijah drove a Volkswagen bus. It was the first time Cassidy had ever been in a VW bus, let alone part of a traveling caravan of deadheads yearning for adventure and searching for the sound. They drove all over California, Illinois, Florida. She met interesting people. She saw God while high on LSD, and then she heard God in the sound of Jerry's guitar. The universe provided, like the time she desperately needed a ticket and she watched as one literally floated through the air and landed in her lap. Cassidy didn't look at the ticket in disbelief. She saw it and knew that her growing faith was being rewarded. She was finally believing in something bigger than herself. She felt like she belonged to a community, to a family. To a group of like-minded people. Freaks and dreamers, wharf rats and Jack Straws. Believers. You had to pull your own weight on the road. Gas, food. It didn't pay for itself. Cassidy made money by piercing ears, noses and navels in the stadium parking lots. She made necklaces and sold those too. Eventually, she squirreled away enough money that she was able to buy her own wheels. $350. Cash. Having her own ride meant that she could come and go on her own time, but remain attached to the culture at large. She barely had the thing for a few weeks before Chief stole it. Deadheads are pack animals. A subculture doesn't survive and thrive on the back of one person alone. And thus, getting separated from the pack led to a unique set of challenges that Cassidy hadn't prepared for. She had no contingency plan, though. No net. No idea what she would do if she found herself in the middle of nowhere with no ears to pierce, no necklaces, no macrame, no fellow deadheads to cling to. Her faith in the universe began to dwindle, like a flame watching the last bits of candle wax melt away. And the Grateful Dead were already trucking on the next whistle stop. Elijah Monkey Plan and his VW bus were long gone down the road. And now, here she was, on the side of the road, feeling bad. Cassidy stood in the breakdown lane of an Arizona highway her flowered skirt blowing in the desert wind, and stuck her thumb towards the rush of each oncoming car. They all passed her by, all but one commercial trucker, a big rig the size of three VW buses. First, she saw its blinker come on as it got closer. Then she heard the metallic bark of the jake brake, and the rig kicked up loose pebbles and dust as it hugged the edge of the road before lumbering to a stop. It hissed loudly. She stood there with nothing, just the clothes she wore in a destination somewhere north of here. The passenger door swung open with a creak, and AM radio blasted ZZ Top. She couldn't really make out the features of the man who sat in the driver's seat. He wore a ball cap. He had a thick beard. His eyes were somewhere in between the two, and she assumed he was looking at her because he was motioning now for her to jump in. Suddenly, she was unsure. She felt a pit at the bottom of her stomach. She had grown to trust the kindness of strangers, but this, this felt a little too much. Once she got inside, and the trucker had locked the doors and was doing 70 on I-10, there would be no escape. Maybe it wasn't the greatest idea, but what other ideas were there? What were her options? This was it. Cassidy had to trust the universe. It had guided her this far. She had to trust that the universe would now see her through to the other side. So she pulled herself up into the rig's cab and closed the door shut. And the truck's engine roared back to life. As it pulled back onto the highway, a plume of thick black smoke shot out behind it where it hung in the air and then disappeared. The most obvious Grateful Dead road song is trucking, of course. And there is also mention of a big diesel Mack truck in Pride of Cucamonga. The one true hitchhiking song in the band's repertoire has got to be Black-Throated Wind, a song that's told from the point of view of someone riding thumb from place to place. Black-Throated Wind was written by the Dead's Bob Weir along with his songwriting partner, John Barlow, and was originally included on a 1972 album called Ace. Although Ace is credited as Weir's debut solo album, it's really a Grateful Dead album in execution, since most of the band performs on it. In their early 70s, the Dead were flat broke. Their finance manager, Lenny Hart, father of Grateful Dead drummer Mickey Hart, had embezzled tens of thousands of their hard-earned dollars. Their contract with Warner Brothers was coming up for renewal. Columbia Records, meanwhile, was making their own overtures to sign the band. Not to be outdone, Warner Brothers demonstrated their respect for the Dead's artistry by suddenly granting multiple members their wish to make their own solo albums. 1972 alone saw the release of Jerry's solo album, Garcia, Mickey's wildly eclectic Rolling Thunder, and Bob Weir's Ace. Ace was the only time that The Dead released a studio recording of Black Throated Wind. They debuted the song in March of 1972 at Winterland in San Francisco, and featured it regularly in their set for the next few years. When it showed up again on an official Dead release, the 1976 double live album, Steal Your Face, The band was on indefinite hiatus. Steal Your Face included a version of Black Throated Wind, among other songs plucked from a run of shows in the fall of 1974, also at Winterland, but not just any shows. Farewell shows. The Grateful Dead said farewell because they were miserable. They weren't a normal touring band anymore. They were hauling around an unprecedented live sound system that they called the Wall of Sound, 604 speakers using 26,400 watts of power that coursed through the hardwired veins of 55 solid-state amplifiers. The equipment weighed 75 tons and required four trucks to transport it. Their contract rider for each show, which was simply titled The Book, was also unwieldy. Its complex staging and electrical requirements were far more burdensome than any other touring bands. Phil Lesh said the wall of sound was like, piloting a flying saucer or riding your own sound wave. But the vibrations were no longer good. The audiences were getting bigger, and that wasn't always a good thing. At Roosevelt Stadium in New York, Bob Weir was hit by a bottle when a sea of deadheads violently turned on the band after they announced the show was being canceled due to rain. Promoters reneged on deals. The band's crew, meanwhile, was, in Weir's own words, drowning in mountains of blow. It was only a few years before the Grateful Dead ended their self-imposed hiatus and returned as a living, breathing band. But it would be nearly 16 years before they ever played Black Throated Wind again. On March 16, 1990, at the Capitol Center in Maryland, the song appeared in the second half of the night's first set. It was now being performed in front of the largest crowds of the Dead's career. Crowds larger than the ones back in the 70s that had partly forced their temporary shutdown. In those 16 years, Bob Weir and John Barlow had rewritten the song's lyrics. They weren't satisfied with its original incarnation. But one thing remained, the title image of a black-throated wind that pours in on the protagonist each refrain. Some said it was a reference to the Lotus Sutra, a Buddhist text, specifically to a black gale that blows wanderers, adventurers, and seekers of treasure off their seafaring course and into the land of the Rakshasa demons spirits that feed on human flesh. Others, on the other hand, thought the song's concept to be simpler. That the black-throated wind was the black smoke that came from the exhaust pipes of diesel rigs. The kind of truck that picked up the song's hitchhiking protagonist on the side of the road. The same kind that would pick up other hitchhikers separated from the deadhead pack. Kids like Cassidy, standing on the side of the road years later. But was the black smoke, the black-throated wind, a good sign, or was it a bad omen? Not that all depended. And many times, the wanderer, the adventurer, the hitcher, they wouldn't know until it was too late.
1: Susan definitely mentioned that she was suspicious of Tro. She was trying to get him to talk. He was not necessarily that forthcoming.
5: My aunt was talking about this guy Tro, like he was this great guy who was like helping them. But my gut right away was like, he's got something to do with this. I don't know why, I just had a gut feeling. I remember my aunt saying that she said, can you send bigger clothes? So I think I'm pregnant. I used to think, well, she got pregnant, she was leaving, Tro didn't want her to leave. Or she got pregnant and he didn't want her to have a baby. You know, I don't know. That was always my thought, was something went wrong with the boyfriend. I don't know.
1: Within a week, of the anniversary of her going missing, 10 years later, Tro died by suicide. Jennifer Wilmer
3: went missing on September 13th of 1993. Two weeks before the 10th anniversary of her disappearance, Tro Patterson, at the age of 33, took his own life.
8: He killed himself for unknown reasons. That just seems really weird and suspicious and I never heard anything from that family they never really the mother and father never really spoke up or tried to help out as far as I knew
5: since then I know he's committed suicide so Tro's no longer in the picture it just was weird to me that nobody in the house had anything to say it just seemed like there was something covered up And to this day, I wonder if there are any of those people that live there that know something.
1: The story that I wrote back in 2003 starts with her looking for happiness, a guy named Happiness.
8: They were also looking for a guy named Happiness. And I did end up finding him myself on Facebook. I got some help from the Web Sleuthers talk to him he was definitely not involved and he remembers everything
1: you know she's looking for a guy named happiness because happiness might know cowboy fred and jennifer was apparently scared of this guy named cowboy fred who kind of hung around in arcada and followed her a little bit this cowboy fred was making her feel very uncomfortable
8: Right before she went missing, she said that she was being followed by a drug dealer named Cowboy Fred. We never found out who this person is, but she was very afraid of him. Still to this day, never found out. But my aunt had a theory, and she had many theories, and they were, some of them I could admit were, were maybe a little bit far-fetched, but she thought that maybe it was that killer Robert Durst, the one that just passed away. She thought that he might have been Cowboy Fred. They are the five words everyone
2: is talking about this week. Killed them all, of course. Is it possible that when he uttered those words, Robert Durst was confessing to three murders? And could the list be even longer?
3: Robert Durst gained notoriety when he made a confession on a hot mic during the filming of the documentary series, The Jinx he was acquitted for the murder of his neighbor. But Durst was eventually convicted to life in prison for the murder of his wife.
8: I think maybe she thought that because he was in the area, but I just think it's a little too far-fetched. But, I mean, you have to just think of everything.
1: When you're looking at a missing persons investigation, one, somebody missing in the desert, is a lot different than somebody missing in a town. In a town with a lot of people, a lot of people who know you. Maybe she was hitchhiking, went out to Arcata, and then she fell upon harm there. The other theory is she went hitchhiking, somebody picked her up, and then she never even got to Arcata. And the other one is that she stumbled upon a grow, maybe asked too many questions or something, and somebody decided that she was a some sort of vulnerability. Her mom thinks that maybe she was hitchhiking and decided, you know what, I'm not going to go to the farm. The farm doesn't need anybody anyway. I'm going to go into Arcata because Tro, her boyfriend, was in Arcata and he always stayed for Monday Night Football because he liked to watch Monday Night Football. So those were the two theories. It always seems
3: to go back to the note. Where was Jennifer trying to go?
5: This note that was written that she went for this job interview, I felt that was fake. All her belongings were still at her house. It just seemed like somebody covered up something. I don't even think they investigated if the letter was authentic. It was just one of those things where nothing ever got really investigated. What my aunt and uncle did was they actually hired their own private investigator and tried to get somewhere, but they spent thousands of dollars. They, they traveled back and forth. Still kind of haunts me to this day that she was so close to being home. She was planning on coming home and then she was missing. I think there are a lot of people out there that were part of this I think that there there are people that know something, and I think we just haven't asked the right person or found the right person, or they just haven't been forthright with what they know.
6: There were three boys and two girls that shared this house where they lived. The only one I know is Tro Patterson, the boy that she so-called dated. We did meet him once or twice out there. Well, the first time we went out to California. Tro's father picked us up at the airport and uh, took us to a restaurant, and we met his wife. She owned a bar. Up-and-coming uh, musicians would play in her place, and we, we were really friends. And then. Uh, All of a sudden, she stopped talking to us. It seemed like we had a friendship up until that point. This kid, uh, Tro Patterson, when he committed suicide, he he shot himself with a a pistol. He made some kind of statement. Now it's finally over. My wife actually thinks that Tro killed her. I I don't know uh, how to describe how she thought he was. She just didn't like him at all. What happened, I think she was... uh, The way I I think it, uh, Joe killed her. There's so many places you can hide a body out there, too. Never find it again.
2: shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast <coughs> selling a little <coughs> or a lot <coughs> shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launcher online shop stage Podcast, all lowercase. Go to shopifycom Odyssey Podcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on. Like Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash not just anyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash not just anyone.
1: I was working with her mom, Susan. Susan passed away, but it's not like I stopped talking to the family because now I talk to Jessica. Jess is actually in the story that I wrote. There's a photo. Jennifer holding Jess on the beach, little did I know I would be talking to that little girl 20 years after I wrote this story, and now she's my liaison to the family.
8: You know, he's been so helpful to me. He's been such a blessing to my aunt. It's just unbelievable how kind he is and how caring he is and how much he wants to help.
1: It doesn't just stop when the parents pass away. You're in this for life. So if you really want to help solve these murders or help find a missing person, it's a commitment that's going to go on for the rest of your life.
8: My whole life, I always wondered, is she alive? Is she dead? Did she want to go missing? It's just, you know, when someone's missing, there's just so many questions, so many unanswered questions, and I can't imagine how my aunt, you know, it took over her entire life. She dedicated her life to it. As her niece, I always told her that, till my dying breath, I'm going to help you look for her. Just to be able to find out what happened to her, where she is, anything, would be such a relief for our family.
1: She's picked up the mantle from Susan, the fact that Jess has, has picked up this mantle is is great. When Jess popped up, I was so elated. This was that little girl from the photo, and now she had taken up the cause. Susan was was hardcore when it came to trying to find her daughter, spending the money, going out there, being very critical of the police department. You know, she said in the article of LaFrancini, he's an idiot and you understand her frustration. Right when I did the story, Susan had declared Jennifer dead. She had done it two weeks before I had talked to her. She said her therapist would say it was a good idea, but it's not changing anything in her mind. She still was hoping that she was alive and she was still going to search for her. One of the things that Susan was able to do that were positive for potentially the next person that went missing was Jennifer's law.
3: Jennifer's Law authorizes the Attorney General to provide grant awards to enable states to improve the reporting of unidentified and missing persons.
1: Clinton signed it in March 2000. What the law did was expanded the nation's missing children database and provided the states more money to enter more complete data because that's one of the things that has been called the nation's silent epidemic. There are so many people that go missing and there are so many unidentified remains. If you have over 60,000 unidentified remains sitting in storage lockers or in what's known as pauper's graves, and you have at any given time, 200,000, 300,000 missing persons, there should be a way to match these up. The problem is, is that not every state is required to enter the data. It's sitting in 17,000 different databases. She definitely tried to move the needle in the right direction with Jennifer's Law. I'm Facebook friends with so many people who I've helped and written stories about and looked into their cases. When you're online at 2 o'clock in the morning, you're going to get messages from them. Sometimes they have a due tip. Sometimes they just want to talk. This is your life. It engulfs you. Time often opens up the truth. With a community like the Deadhead community and, and people talking, someone's going to say something at some point.
3: Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis, and brought to you by Cadence 13, and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. The show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.